Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People Gift Card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Eloise, Rouen, France, 1944. Before I left for my mission, right at the airport as I was boarding the plane, Miss Elwood offered me the standard SOEL pill, a lethal cyanide pill. They offered every agent the same on deployment. It was a comfort to some to know they had on hand a quick, efficient way to end their life if the situation became too intense. I'd refuse the pill arrogantly convinced I'd be smart enough to evade capture and even if I was captured, strong enough to withstand any interrogation. I breezed through my mock interrogations during SOE training. I was even lightly beaten at one point, left with a black eye and some painfully bruised ribs and still I held my tongue. I never doubted for a second that I'd be able to do so in a real interrogation, not until the minute I found myself in that hallway. A real-world test was potentially upon me, and my courage was about to be tried, truly tried, by interrogators who might opt to use no restraint at all, unlike my instructors. I mean, hell, it was Mr Turner who beat me that night, the nicest of all the instructors, even when he was attempting to appear menacing. I'd have no such mercy from these men. What if, the moment I felt physical pain, I started to babble SOE secrets, Names, addresses, code names, plans. It was all there in my mind. Kelly Rimmer is the New York Times, Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestselling author of 10 novels, including The Secret Daughter, The Warsaw Orphan, The German Wife and The Things We Cannot Say. Today, I'm joined by Kelly Rimmer to talk about her new book, The Paris Agent. Kelly Rimmer, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. The Paris Agent is the story of two remarkable women, Fleur and Chloe, also known as Eloise and Josie, but inspired by the lives of real special operations executives working in Paris in 1944. What's the history behind the lives of the women in this story? My characters are inspired by the real-life SOE operatives, Violette Sabo and Diana Rowden, who were two absolutely incredible women who had basically lived somewhat ordinary lives until they were recruited by the SOE and then they wanted to perform these incredible and heroic and quite independent feats in occupied France. Josie, Montbelliard, France, 1943. It wasn't uncommon at all for a special operations executive agent to have their mission cut short by a bullet or handcuffs at the moment of landing. I did not need to be told twice to take cover. I pushed the latch to open the roof above me, then checked the ground. Two men were scurrying towards the plane, carrying a makeshift stretcher between them. The field right below me was clear, so I tossed my suitcases out and then scrambled down the ladder against the fuselage. Case in hand, I sprinted as fast as I could to hide in a nearby thatch of trees and shrubs. From there, I watched the men struggle to lift a moaning, wailing woman from the stretcher into the plane. They shut the hatch and within seconds, the Lysander did a sharp U-turn and began to accelerate. The men crouched low and ran back towards me as the tiny plane bounced back across the short field to lift sharply into the air. 
So Lysander had been on the ground for only a minute or two. Now it levelled off above us and quickly disappeared from sight. I was finally back in France, finally home. This was far from the homecoming I dreamed of, but it was something. I breathed in deeply and blinked away the tears of relief that filled my eyes. Even under such trying conditions, it was good to be back where I belonged. So what was the life, and, and for that matter, the life expectancy of an SOE, Special Operations Executive? The odds were absolutely stacked against these people. So you can imagine they were, they had several months of really intensive training, but they they, they weren't, they didn't tend to be military people, particularly the women who might have had some, for example, Violet had some um, experience within the Auxiliary Territorial Service, but she was far from a seasoned soldier. So she had about three months training and then she was deployed into France and in the case of both these women, they were able to conduct successfully entire missions. But for some roles within the SOE, particularly, for example, the wireless operators who were responsible for communications between France and the head office in London, their average time from deployment to capture or or worse was about six weeks. How do you distill that into such distinctive characters, in this case, Eloise and Josie? I tend to overwrite like to a ridiculous degree, to be honest with you. My books are always way too long and editorial is usually about finding what the heart of the story is because research is probably my favourite part of the job. Um, And so I spend months and months immersed in this world, finding every scrap of, you know, data that I can find and every photograph I can stare at and every oral history I can listen to. And then I, my first instinct is to cram every single bit of that into the story but readers don't want to read a textbook and I don't particularly want to write a textbook. And so it is, it really is a balancing act, finding what, what you need to set the story in a way that readers will participate in and fill in some gaps with their imagination. Um, and so I, I, but I haven't perfected that process. Even after all of these books, I still have to do it the hard way of overriding first. The magic of it for me is that I, you know, I start off with an idea. So with the character of Eloise, she's a mum, a very young mum and a widow, and that drives her in a particular way. So that was kind of my starting point with her, which all of that is true about Violet Sabo. She was a a young mum and a widow, a very young mum and a recent widow, and she was absolutely driven by revenge and the desire to exact revenge on the people who had taken her beloved husband from her. And so that's my starting point. And then as I'm reading about, in this case, I wanted to tell the story of the women of the SOE. And so my characters are mostly based upon Violette and Diana, but I've drawn from all sorts of other stories to fill in some gaps. I don't know, the writer's mind and the way that the fact and fiction come together, it's it's um, it's more art than science. And readers might want to be aware of the many aliases used throughout the book just to throw a puzzle into a mystery. Yes, so the I actually have simplified that somewhat from the reality and it's confusing enough as it is. So um, these, these agents would operate under many different names. They would have sets of spare ID, hidden false ID, hidden with their belongings while they were in occupied territory. So if they had to quickly change their persona, they could do so in a heartbeat. So they might have one name one day and one particular backstory and then that might be exposed or they might fear that it was exposed. And so the next day there was someone else in entirely with a different way of walking, a different way of dressing, a different way of speaking. And so trying to, I tried to capture just enough of that reality in my characters so that readers have a sense of 
the, the extraordinary way these people had to be so fluid about who they were acting as on a particular day. And so the story jumps forward in time to a cosy suburban home in Liverpool in 1970, an entirely new perspective. And it's the home of Noah Ainsworth, also known as Special Operations Executive Marcel. But this is where the mystery begins. But memory is a bit of a problem for Noah, isn't it? Mm, it is. So Noah is injured or has been badly injured during the war, in the, the kind of dying days of the war. And he has a brain injury. So he's lived and had quite a successful life with his brain injury. But it affects his speech and it, it significantly affects his memories of the war. And there's a fair degree of trauma in there too. So you can imagine for anyone who operated in these roles, this is a long time before the, the term PTSD was kind of coined and so he has effectively tried to move on but there are big gaps in his memory partly through the injury partly through the trauma and there's a bit of a trigger there that sets him off on a certain pathway Yes, that's right. So Noah's beloved wife, Geraldine, has recently died um, and his daughter, Charlotte, is our protagonist in that in that modern, more modern part of the book. And Noah and Charlotte are working through their grief at the sudden loss of Geraldine. But for Noah, he's reflecting on this amazing life that he's lived, that he has had a family and he's built a business and a home and had a marriage that he's very proud of. But when he looks back at his life and particularly to the day when he was injured, he knows someone saved his life and he believes it's a particular agent. And so together, Charlotte and Noah go off in search of finding that agent so that Noah can look him in the eye and thank him for saving him. You make it seem so simple, but it actually gets more complicated than that. <laughs> it really does, yes. <laughs> From that arises this father-daughter project. Yes. But in that process, Charlotte is forced to confront some uncomfortable truths, I suppose, and that only seems to raise more questions for her. Um, there was significant, actually quite incredible secrecy around the SOE, even after the war. And so for my characters trying to find a particular person, it wasn't as simple as finding a directory of SOE agents and then looking someone up. They, Noah thinks he remembers the code name of the agent who saved his life, but how did they get from there to an actual human? And, you know, they're well aware that this agent might have died in the war or might have died since. And so they, their goal is to just find names so that they can either lay some flowers on someone's grave or tell their family what they did. Um, but they quickly realise that it's much more complex than they thought it was going to be and even in the way that she thinks about her family you know particularly in the wake of of a tragic death of a loved one we tend to paint people with incredibly rose-colored glasses and for Charlotte part of her grieving process is grieving who her mother really was and part of her she's a young adult she's only in her very early 20s and so part of her growing up is recognizing that even her beloved dad might not be perfect um, and so this story kind of follows her as she learns all sorts of things about her parents that she didn't expect to learn. This leads them to the official historian for the SOE. In my book, it's a, a, an academic professor named Professor Harry Reid. He's inspired by the real-life historian uh, Michael Foote, MRD Foote, who wrote the Bible of the SOE, um, which the, he was allowed by the British government to study very highly classified records, what remained from the years of the SOE, because much of much of what we would probably retain today was destroyed either accidentally or intentionally straight after the war. But Professor Foote, the real-life historian, was able to access what remained and eventually published a book on it, which I used in depth as I was researching this. But my character, inspired by him, Professor Reed, 
is still in the process of writing the book and isn't yet able to share the data. And so he helps, but not directly. This book really explores those secret lives, the things that we don't know about people, but also the way people are propelled into these secret lives, if you like, sometimes by chance and sometimes by curiosity. For Charlotte, it's by curiosity. Uh, Is this where the real stories lie for you? Yeah, I love to write about different connections between people. So in this case, this story is primarily about family connections. There's a few romantic connections in there. There's some very unhealthy connections. Um, and so for Charlotte, I think I think she, she makes new connections through this project as well, which become really important to her. But it is about, I think for her, she her grief has isolated her in a particular way since the loss of her mum as a young person who is kind of one of the first people in her cohort to lose a parent. She's got to navigate that and her friends don't necessarily understand it. And so, so yeah, it's about it's about how she matures and grows and learns the real truth so that she can really move on properly. I started with the idea that someone had said to me one day, everything happens for a reason. And I, I was reflecting on that and I thought, actually, it happens for a reason because we assign a reason to it. It's not that there's, in my perspective, I don't think there's some, you know, global intention to everything, every tiny thing that happens in our lives, but particularly the big events, part of how we part of how we come to grips with things is we say, well, from that, I've got this, or from that, I've learned this. And so when Charlotte looks at her life, which she would not have had but for the but for the fact that the Allies won the war, which her dad contributed to, which all of these agents worked together and someone saved her dad's life so that she could be born, she finds the meaning in understanding all of that. Can we talk about the double agent of what seems to be many double agents in uh, this story? Yes. So when we talk about the SOE, we often talk about the heroism, of which there was an immense amount, but there was also quite a lot of incompetence and there was also some pretty significant villainy. So there were there we now know that there were people who were disloyal within the ranks of the SOE, potentially quite senior in the officials, you know, connections to officials who were very, very high up in the organization. And in my book, there is a double agent who is inspired by the real-life man, Henri Derecourt, who was thought to and is kind of understood now to have been working with the the Nazis and probably led to the lives of uh, many agents being cut short or many agents being captured. And so I wanted to write about the fact that these agents were so vulnerable. They're in the field. Sometimes they have no connection back to London except for a wireless operator, and as I've already said, the wireless operators were dropping like flies, so there would be periods where they were really, truly on their own at the mercy of the decisions being made back in London. And when some of the connections back to London and some of the decisions being made at a high level were influenced by people who didn't have the best interests of the Allies or the agents at heart, there were some really tragic outcomes. This is a very intriguing story, and it certainly brings a new perspective to that whole period and the people involved in it. Kelly, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. It's my pleasure. Nice to speak to you. I've been talking to Kelly Rimmer about her new book, The Paris Agent. It's published by Hachette, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading Podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.